Welcome to the podcast that's dedicated to working with business owners and helping them prepare their business for exit. This enables them to exit on their terms, when they want and how they want. Today, I've got Chris Cole. Now, Chris is a bit of a legend in entrepreneurial spaces as he's exited three businesses in three different ways. He's done an MBO, he's sold to private equity and he's listed a company. Today, nowadays, he's working with 40 Fathoms and that's a company that invests in high growth startup companies. So welcome, Chris, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank, thank, thanks very much and thanks for the introduction. Sounds great. Well, I only did what you paid me to do, mate. <laughs> hey, yeah, look, uh, it is a, a worthy introduction and we, we feel uh, um, very privileged to have you on the show. So why don't you just you know, give the, the, the listeners a little bit of a, a background and intro into how you arrived at, at 40 Fathoms and, and I guess we'll, we'll dig into some of the tips and tricks you learned along the way that other business owners can learn from your experience. Okay, sure. Um, well, look, I guess if I, if I wind the tape back a bit, I was probably a kid who grew up watching far too much Dallas and Dynasty. Um, that certainly seemed far more fun than, uh, than Coronation Street and uh, EastEnders. And at the same time, you know, joking aside, I think I saw my dad uh, have sort of a corporate career and then lose his job. And I decided, you know, I really wanted to get have control in my life and in my destiny. Um, and I'd seen how my family over the years had moved from what I'd call sort of, uh, well, the back streets of North London to having a degree of sort of salaried comfort. But to me, I felt a sense of duty around um, wanting to create capital wealth because so, I really believe in the choices and freedoms that that generates for people. And for me, I thought the route to do that was about building businesses you can be proud of, things that are a bit of a force for good, um, and uh, things you could, you know, see, you could scale and ultimately exit. And, and create you know, capital wealth and security. Now that might be a bit uh, unfashionable uh, these days, but you know, it's, it's what motivated me and still motivates me now, but I want to build good businesses to be proud of, that do a good job for customers, um, but create capital wealth um, for the shareholders and the team at the same time. Nothing wrong with that from, uh, yeah, I think that's what makes the economy grow is to have businesses that build and grow. And uh, if shareholders are successful, then they're going to be more likely to invest in, in future companies. I think, I think, think that's right. So yeah, I, I started off in, um, in the staffing sector. You know, frankly, when we, when we launched um, Hydrogen, which was my first staffing business, you know, the world didn't need another recruitment business. But I was very fortunate and I talked to someone and they said, you know, one of the key things you need to be able to articulate why your business is different. And, um, you know, I had to think, think about this and was lucky to sort of pick a, pick a couple of partners who were, you know, had, a, had a different set of uh, skills to myself. Um, one was very good at sort of strategy and, and, um, and thinking. And um, we sort of honed in on the, the fact there were a couple of different factors happening in different recruitment markets. So one was sort of skill shortages. So frankly, if we could find candidates other people couldn't find who are in short supply, then we found that customers would talk to us. And also we found that the level of customer service given to candidates in the market at that time was very poor. Um, so we found if we um, treated candidates better than was normally in the industry, um, yeah, differentiated ourselves through service and culture, um, then uh, you know, we felt we could start to take market share. And that's what we did. So we positioned the business around candidate scarce markets we got very clear on sort of our points of difference in terms of how we treated our customers. We um, made one or two 
I suppose you could argue quite bold at the time, sort of statements around saying, well, if we place someone in a job, it doesn't work out, we'll just give the money back at any point over the next six months. Um, and we set about scaling the business and that business, you know, went on virgin fast track. We wanted to um, sell the business or float the business actually for 50 million quid within 10 years. And we managed to list it for just over 60 in nine years. Um, my only, I say regret, me regrets the wrong term. Uh, I, I have a, a, a relative, my auntie Elena, uh, who actually was, uh, is from the foothills of the Himalayas. And um, I remember her once saying to me in my back garden, when I was growing up, you know, the old shoot for the, shoot for the stars, hit the treetops, shoot for the treetops, hit the rooftops uh, uh, story. And yeah, she went on from the foothills of the Himalayas as a, uh, lady of Asian descent in uh, in the 1960s and 70s, she went on to become a uh, you know, headmistress of a school over in the UK. So not um, not insignificant at that point in time. Um, I do think I wonder rather than picking that number, 50 million, if we if we'd maybe stuck a north on it, what we could have done. Because um, I think you end up, and one of my key lessons of people would be, you know, set your goal really clearly, and then align your actions to to that goal and the actions of the people around you to that goal. And you can achieve you can achieve many things. You can achieve great things, but it's about your yeah, goal alignment. That's been one of my sort of key lessons over the uh, over the years. Yeah, so I think you you covered a bit of ground there, and that there's a number of things that are worth you know, I guess uh, pinpointing as as top tips. First one I think I heard was you, you had a bit of a niche, like you identified niche markets where no one else was focusing. So if you if you stand out from the crowd and you be different, then then that's a big help when. You know, there's a whole lot of me too companies out there and everyone looks the same. You know, it tends to turn the product into a commodity. When we stand out, we, we, by definition, we're different, which is valuable and worth something. So that's the first thing I heard. The other thing that I heard that I think is really critical to business owners is, is just, you almost said it in passing, but goal setting. And I think so many business owners start off with a, with a goal and, and have some goal setting, but they soon lose sight of it. Um, and you know, that's what I see. And they just you know, approach each year of just doing more of the same. And you know, we'll just try and do a bit better than the next year. And you ask them what their plans are, the business plans. And they go, well, I'm going to grow the business. And I go, great. Well, you know, what's your business plan? Uh, well, it's in my head. Well, what happens after you're going to grow the business? I haven't thought that bit through. So I think they just get caught in a rut and just doing the same old, same old. So um, goal setting, just like athletes, can can really play pay dividends for us and uh, help us uh, achieve more than average. Oh, look, I think I think you're bang on right. Um, you know, we started out, we didn't have much else other than that, really. Um, you know, I think you need to know what your vision is. You need to know what your purpose is and what you stand for. You need to know those key USPs, the things that make you different. Yeah. And then we, we found, and we were very lucky, you know, we got to go to the Virgin Fast Track uh, fairly early on with how the business grew. And we got to hear people like Charles Dunstan, uh, Alan Sugar speaking about their business growth and you know, trying, trying to nick some of their lessons really. But, and they, they talked about the importance of setting a plan and a vision. Um, I can't remember whether, whether one of them said it, or we found that actually a three year plan always worked best for us. One year was too short, five years was a bit too far, three years kind of worked. Um, we found, and it's something we really uh, built on when we then built up Make It Cheaper, the price comparison business, having listed hydrogen, we then went on launch Make It Cheaper. Um, we found getting really focused on what are the right inputs that drive the right outcomes matters, and a real mantra around measure it, measure it, measure it, and review it. And not don't review performance to try and beat people up. I think you mentioned 
like sports people do, review performance on sand, you know, the greats and the grows, how can you get better? How can you get better? How do you set a new personal best? Um, in fact, our, our teams used to be, um, used to, I said, be rewarded, they'd be rewarded and celebrate. They'd be rewarded on the inputs, not the output. So they'd be rewarded on, um, yeah, have they put the right lead indicators in because we believe that to deliver the right outcome. And then they would celebrate setting new personal bests and world records for when they had achieved certain goals, performance standards, net promoter scores and customers, whatever it might be. Teams had a, a set of, uh, uh, of things they were trying to set new, new PBs on. And that was, that was really powerful. Um, so set your goals, get aligned to them, measure it, review it, measure it, review it. I think Jack Welsh was a biggie for if you can't measure it, you can't manage it or something. And that sort of resonated with us. Yeah. But use that to let people review their performance and get better and better and better. Well, yeah, look, you've, you've really hit on something close to my heart there, Chris. Um, you know, yes, you need to monitor things and you, you've got to measure them. Um, otherwise, how do you know you're getting there? But the thing that you really picked on was, I think you said lead indicators versus lag indicators or words to that effect. And, and something that's hit home with me recently is uh, you know, correlating this to uh, high performance athletes and, and, and looking at what athletes do. They have to reset their goals every year and they can't win the championships. And, and what a lot of business owners do is they, they set these outcome goals like revenue, profit, you know, number of employees. And, and there's no point, almost no point in reporting on that because it's too late. Lead indicators or what athletes refer to as process goals, you know, are the, are the key here. You know, you can, you can control the process. If you focus on the process that will lead you to achieving that outcome, then you can adapt and fine tune it along the way. From an athlete's perspective, if you get injured, you, know, you, can, you can change your plan and adapt and reset your goals. If we have a pandemic or, or some sort of recession, we can adapt. We, we can't you know, change our goals. So uh, yeah, that's a really great piece of advice. Uh, at Make It Cheap, or the business now called Bionic, and that's the price comparison business we're going to be built up, and we sold just under half of it to private equity for a, a similar sort of numbers I talked about before, actually. And then that business is now sort of three years to its private equity, uh, yeah, its final private equity sort of journey or hold. We've really got very focused on what we call MPA's most powerful actions to the point where pretty much anyone in the business would know what their most powerful actions most powerful actions are. So they're the lead indicators, the lead inputs they have into their role. We're trying to make sure they understood how those fed into the overall picture for the business and the business's strategies and goals, try and get that overall goal alignment. You know, I don't want to say she's totally is not perfect, but we try to, to do that. Um, but you know, people were always surprised when they came into the business to visit the business. They would we, literally say, Look, you could tap that guy on the shoulder, and we didn't set it up. We could tap that guy on the shoulder and ask him um, what his MPAs are, and he'd be able to tell you what, both what they are and where he or she is on them today against their weekly or monthly target. And that, yeah, that was the culture we, uh, we developed. And it was a bit of a, a leap of faith. We believed in it, but you know. It's a leap of faith for, faith for our CFO when we said, well, you know what? We're going to spin everyone's bonuses onto the inputs, not the outputs. The output is our problem, say the revenue and the profit. These people do this, well, put the inputs in, the outputs to take care of themselves. You know, you cross the ball enough times to Ronaldo, Ronaldo, he will score goals. Let's focus on getting the crosses across to Ronaldo, not count the goals. We, yeah, we, we, found that, we found that word for us. So the most powerful action sounds fascinating. So... Everyone had their own MPAs? Yes, I mean, some teams would have the same MPA, uh, you know, they would, because they were doing the same task, the same role, 
but they would have their own scores against their against their MPAs. So typically people would have three to five. We find people remember three to five things. Yeah. You'd have two to five key inputs. Those key inputs might be the same if you're doing the same role as someone else, but you'd know what your score is on those MPAs. And then your score would, would feed up into your team's overall score and into your team, your team leaders, your team managers' remuneration, and your MPAs would drive your remuneration. And, and all of these Sorry, there was a big. There was all one MPA which we, we would never trade across anyone who was in any way touching the customer was um, a, a customer uh, a customer focus MPA or action. We always wanted to keep the customer at the centre of the business. You know, I found as we scaled uh, a couple of businesses, as we scaled the business, it's very easy. I had a bit of a eureka moment one day. That's overdoing it. I had a bit of a moment one day when. And I thought, crikey, I've sat in this meeting with a bunch of guys who actually used to be salespeople and they're now managing. And I've sat in a couple of meetings and no one's talking about the customer. And ultimately the customer is the person that's paying all of our bills here. Um, and it was a real sort of penny drop moment for me to say, you, you want to make sure you keep the customer front and center in the company. And you know, we went through phases where we'd have a picture on the wall of a customer. So we'd always, we're having a conversation. We go, what would the customer say? What would the customer think about that? Um, and we used to make sure that um, all uh, managers in the business, or, or yeah, yeah, all managers in the business or leads in the business, yeah, would have goals around um, around customers and customer contact to make sure they kept you know, customer front and centre in what in what we were doing, uh, kept close to the market. And okay, so all of your metrics were focused on the customer and, and the MPAs. So, and I take it the MPAs were, you know, every employee could see how their MPA would help achieve the business plan for that year or, or was linked to the vision or the, or the goals yeah. uh, of the business. Largely, yeah. I mean, it wasn't quite utopia, but, but uh, you know, yeah. but largely that was the whole idea, feed the, you know, cascade the vision through to action plans. Each person has the action plan, their team's part of that. Their own inputs into it, and they're rewarding off the reward off those MPAs, and they always had a customer MPA. Always had a customer MPA. Okay, and so you measure, 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 and we yeah. do performance. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, and and if we're checking in, and people are held accountable to those MPAs, and and as you say, rewarded against them, it sounds like you've got a great culture of you know checking in on what's being promised to be done, and then holding people account to actually delivering what they promised, which. I guess in most businesses is where things slip through the net and why they don't achieve the, the growth targets that they, they put their minds to. I think you're right. You know, I, we do some investing now through, um, through 40 Fathoms and you know, we see a lot of great PowerPoint decks and ideas. Um, but you know, we are big fans of, I think it's probably lifting Sam Walton from Walmart's uh, saying or story about, you know, Give me a great plan or give me a good plan well executed over a great strategy any day of the week and i yeah. i sort of I, i'm a firm believer in that um you want clearly you want good plans the better the better the better but execution is so important and um i think it's a it's a it's an overlooked discipline or overlooked skill set often and i think you know we, we can all get particularly more entrepreneurial individuals i think can get very excited about the future and the innovation and creation um, and kind of get you know, very excited about that and lose sight of, are we doing what we said we're gonna do when we said we're gonna do it? Are we moving this business forward? 
And I have had a bit of a penny drop sort of three or four years into my first business. So one of the sales managers I really respected kind of said to me, oh, the thing is, Chris, you know, we know that um, if you have an idea and you say something, um, if we don't do anything on it and uh, we leave it a few weeks, well, you know, you're probably never going to come back and ask us about it. And so therefore, if we don't like it, we don't do it. And that was a real penny drop for me. Um, I thought, right, okay, I've got to learn a discipline now and execution. And, and learning that, you know, really helped that business accelerate and really helped um, uh, make it cheaper Barnick accelerate. Yeah. It's that follow through. Yeah, it's that application. It's, it's yeah, you know, finishing things off, uh, which will separate 90% of the businesses from, from anyone else. Yeah, I think that's a big area of uh, lost opportunity. Yeah, I think, I think, I think that's right. I'd, you know, I'd put execution towards the top of my list of things that really you know, make a difference. I think that, you know, have that vision, translate your vision into a set of goals, align your actions to, to, to the vision, be all over execution, measure, review, measure, review, so you can continue to improve and, and build on your momentum. And then, you know, a couple of other little watch outs for me, there'd be something around just knowing your model. What I mean by that is just understand, understand how revenue, profit and cash flows in your business. You know, it's a well-worn adage around, uh, you know, turnover is, uh, is vanity, profit is reality and cash flow is sanity. But it amazes me how many people don't really understand their P&L and how the cash flows to their business. And, um, you know, I think uh, we've all been there where at times, well, so certainly I've been there where you've had to put your house on the line and all that kind of stuff to build your company. You've got to understand how, you, how your numbers flow. And I sort of look at it almost being like restaurant maths. You know, when you can check it, have a quick glance at a restaurant bill and you know the you know it looks right or wrong. Yeah. You should look at your P&L and get the same sense, I think. So, um, so know your models. And then I also would just say, watch out for the spaghetti. Uh, what, what I found as you, grew, as you grow the business is you just keep re-engineering all sorts of different processes, methodologies, reinventing stuff. Um, and there's a real risk you end up you know, reinventing the wheel uh, several times over. Um, and uh, yeah, again, if I had my time again, I would stick far more closely to the spaghetti, uh, sorry, st stick far more closely to your processes, your rhythms, try not to over the businesses with too many uh, balls of spaghetti, um, just a huge waste of energy and effort. Get one process, it works, keep refining it. Yeah, and have everyone do it the same way. In the same way and i think that's the reason i think that's something you know when i've seen we've hired people from big companies and to be fair to them you know people often moan about big companies but there's a reason why they're big and one of the things i take from that is that they do tend to have some systems and processes that everyone sort of follows yeah. and uh, i think that <clears throat> that saves a lot of wasted energy and does build momentum within a company well you get efficiency just because you've got no variation yeah nothing else and and that's where the whole quality movement came from is going well we've got one one process that we all follow it the same way well now let's just look back and make sure that we keep you know improving it and uh improving it improving it improving it and it's okay to test and question the process but as long as we're all doing it the same way in the meantime we're going to make profit we're going to get progress no i think i think that's um, yeah i think that's true so i think we've covered two businesses tell us about the uh third business where you uh, did an mbo that was a that was a, another staffing business actually where we um, actually probably it probably talks to exit planning to to a degree um, because the first two businesses 
you clearly could see a route to exit the businesses um, in terms of the, the characteristics of their marketplace. <clears throat> you know, the staffing business had a good contract book internationally, which meant that um, people would look at it from a um, IPO perspective. The, um, the, the price comparison business, again, had good repeat revenues and was in a, in a large growth market um, and a market that's of interest to people in the UK around SME. Uh, which meant you'd get private equity uh, interest and trade interest. Um, this other, other business, Human Capital, was a, was a smaller staffing business um, in, within the search arena. Um, and those businesses are slightly harder to get uh, capital events out of. Um, but what we found was by sort of understanding um, the characteristics of the exit market, we were actually able to understand the way in which we'd get best value for that business was by being able to offer an evergreen model to the management team to buy the business out, um, actually funded by debt that the company would take on. Um, and it became, so it became a real model at the core of the business um, because you know, each generation of people that came into the business and progressed through it could then see that their way of creating capital wealth on top, in addition to salaried wealth was to ultimately become a partner and do the next evergreen takeout of the previous shareholders. So sort of about every five years or so, the company um, would you know, take on some debt, use that debt to pay out the existing shareholders. Over the next four or five years, the new, the new shareholders would then pay down that debt via the company's trading and then they do repeat the same process and they'd get a capital windfall. And that's worked really well in that business. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not a massive business. It's sort of 15 million in revenue, maybe about four or five million of EBITDA based um, yeah, around the world. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been a great way of maintaining uh, staff engagement in the company and building, you know, building a good, decent company, but also realizing you know, a decent capital return from it. But I think um, jumping around a bit, sorry, you know, the key thing there really, across all three businesses it comes to exiting has been you know, get, a, get, a, get a plan in place. And I reckon our experience, it was probably in each business, at least two or three years before we exited them, we were forming our plan of um, how we wanted to exit, yeah. why we wanted to exit, how we wanted to, what the potential elements of the bar landscape would be, what the right positioning of the business would be for those buyer landscape. Um, what the kind of questions they would have around the business and then how might we mitigate uh, those questions or challenges. Um, but by thinking sort of at least from three years out, it might have been even longer. It gave ourselves sufficient time to build the right strength and depth in the business. So you had something that was you know, a, strong, a strong asset, a strong business to, to sell. Um, it also then helped us sort of think forward a bit in terms of right as we go through an exit process, um, you know what are going to be you know, the good old art of war, but what are going to be the questions we're going to be asked? Where is it going to go pear shaped? What where might uh, someone go sort of looking to uh, identify risk, maybe reduce value? Um, how do you, you know, how, how can you? Um, head that off, not in a, um, not, in a uh, not, not in an avoiding type of way, but just, okay, look, there's, there's, someone's gonna be looking there, there's a challenge or issue there, how do we remove that challenge or issue? So, so thinking forward, um, yeah, ahead of the process rather than when you're all, you know, 
up to your neck in the process um, and or someone's probably spent the check four times out four times already in their mind and you know emotions run a bit for all and people make uh, poor decisions i think um but by by sort of getting that planning in place and knowing the exit routes knowing if you like the position in the business to exit knowing the types of questions that are likely to come up through the process we were then able to get alignment in each instance really amongst the shareholders about what we would do how we would do it how we tackle those situations and who would do what during the process because some people get involved in the process some would maintain involved in running the business because a key reason the process falls over probably the most common reason is the trading comes off um so um you know you want to make sure you keep executing all the way through always through always all the way through a process um we put a lot of time in each instance a lot of time into selecting advisors um, and trying to get a feeling for which advisors do we really uh, uh, trust who had the right experience in our sector or businesses where we could see a crossover to the issues that we're going to we'd seen so it might not have been a direct sector fit but you thought okay one or two of the challenges we face might be people don't understand about the reoccurring revenues in this marketplace Where's a similar market with a similar model that we can then find an advisor who's worked on that to come and represent us? So anyway, we really put a lot of time and attention into selecting the advisor and basically getting, getting confident that, again, when you're in the trenches, um, when the deal is going uh, pear-shaped at, at the 11th hour, do you, do you trust you've got the right person going to bat for you um, to have the right conversations and also give you the right advice? Um, and the good thing about the right advisor is not only they give you the right advice during the process, pre-process, they give you the right advice around positioning of the, of the business. Um, and then like everything else, you know, good old mantra, but have a plan for how you're going to do it and follow through and, ex and execute that plan whilst obviously recognizing as with all good plans, they're going to go off track a bit. So how do you react to pull, to pull, them, pull them back on plan? But so it's a long-winded way of answering your question, but it all starts with understanding the different exit routes available to your business early on and planning that back. And yeah, that was a three to five year journey for us, I think. Well, look, yeah, I think what you gave was an incredible answer there because it's almost like you read off our 21 steps process, <laughs> which is priceless because, yeah, I, I, yeah you, it's almost if I set you up for, for that answer and you read the list. So uh, yeah, they're... It, it's consistent across all businesses, all those areas you described, what business owners should be preparing for in advance. And I think it was, uh, you know, Colby, Stephen Covey, who says, you know, begin with the end in mind. And that's, you know, any planning process. If you, if you know where you're headed and what the end goal is, then you can put the steps in place to get there. And, and you can see the milestones that you're making progress and, and you're heading there. And, and what, you know, if you haven't made the journey before, as you say, getting the right advisors on board to guide you through that process, they can help you get there faster and, and with less pain, yeah. is, is the general feedback. Agreed, 100%. 100%. Okay. Well, I think, I, think I, I think you started off at the, at the, at the start of the, the, the discussion saying, uh, you know, you send me the check or whatever. So um, <laughs> I guess I either, uh, say one in reverse or whatever. We're, we're now equal. Yeah, nice work. Uh, played that well. So, Chris. What motivated you through you know, your three, three startups, three exits, um, and now you're continuing to, to work with, with other startups? What motivates you? Like, uh, yeah, there's a driving force there. I think you, you, you slipped in earlier about uh, you know, um, the greater good. 
Yeah, there is, I mean, there are probably two or three different things that come together. So, you know, one is um, I, I do want to, I, I enjoy building businesses that are a force for good that you can be proud of. So again, go back to the recruitment sector, um, you know, I felt that, that that sector was poorly served. You were messing around in some of the most important areas of people's lives, their careers, and one of the most important things for companies, their talent. And I didn't feel, feel that some of the people operating the sector gave it the, um, the, the professional due that it, was, it should have had. And so there was a chance to go and do something where you say, yeah, you know, I'd want friends and family to be clients in this business. Similarly with make it cheaper, you know, you work really hard building a small business and you discover you're paying through the nose for your insurance or your telco or energy bill because you've been too busy to be on top of that when you're trying to look after your customers' needs and actually being loyal to the provider, but you're, you're getting you're getting uh, shafted on the price. Um, again, I felt that was wrong. So building companies are a bit of a force for good is definitely something that's important, uh, important to me. Um, I think I mentioned earlier on, you know, too much Dallas and Dynasty is out of fashion, but yeah, I want, I, you know, I do believe in, in wealth creation. That's not about having Ferraris and Sunseekers. Yeah, it's that night, albeit it may be nice to have, but actually I, I take a great deal of pride from the probably 5,000 jobs I've created or have been indirectly created through my companies. Um, I know of at least a dozen startups that have spawned off of those businesses to varying degrees of success. And I do believe in um, a wealth creation society um, and you know, by creating wealth, by creating net contributor society, then you build the right uh, financial infrastructure for, uh, for the country. I do believe in a quality of opportunity, uh, but I guess I probably believe in there is a bit of an inequality in outcome, but I think a quality of opportunity I, I believe in, I believe that wealth creation is a key part uh, of that. So. Um, that's important to me. And then I think, yeah, there's probably a bit of, I don't know, good old guilt or something. I've been blooming lucky uh, over my life and um, it feels that uh, it feels the right thing to do and what I want to do to continue to try and you know, give something back. And how I give something back is by trying to um, help build great companies. Brilliant. <clears throat> so you've been doing it yeah, a number of years. You've got three successful exits uh, under your belt. What's next? Well, um, 40 Fathoms is next, really. So 40 Fathoms is this uh, private fund that myself, Jonathan, my business partner, and Martin, my third partner, have sort of um, have put together. Um, you know, it's what we're looking to do is invest in relatively uh, small, uh, you know, one to 10 million turnover type businesses, probably early profits, uh, probably up to a million pounds of the profitability, where we can bring if you like the toolbox of what we've learned along the way and work with um, existing management teams or maybe a business where the founder's exiting and maybe there's a second tier coming in or we can bring the right leadership capability in to take the business onto the next level where we can work with businesses to help them scale um, and you know, reach their full potential perhaps in a slightly bigger, faster way than they might otherwise have done themselves um, by combining some capital for development, de-risking uh, existing shareholders um, and this sort of toolbox of methodologies uh, that we work to to help the businesses uh, accelerate. So we're looking to um, invest in probably three to five companies over the next couple of years and uh, and go again and you know, have some fun along the way. So it sounds like really, you know, three to five companies, you're leveraging all the knowledge that you've all learned over the years and applying it to a number of businesses at once, a bit of scale um, at that level as well. Yeah, that, that, that's right. That's right. And uh, yeah. 
we've uh, we've got we've got a, a couple of businesses who are very close to investing in Flamers. Last words, um, and uh, clearly, obviously, we'd like to talk to others over time. So exciting times ahead. If if anyone uh, listening has got a business where they're seeking some investment, forty fathoms. Um, what's the website? Four zero. Four yeah four uh, four zero so four zero fathoms.co.uk. Brilliant. Or just email Chris at forty fathoms. Okay. Well. Look, it's really exciting times ahead. Chris, one thing I, I ask of everyone who, who joins me here on the Exits, Exit Insights podcast is, what are your tips? What's, what's the one key thing you, you've learned um, you know, going through a number of exits that you wish you knew beforehand? That, uh, so any business owners who are coming up to the beginning of their exit journey, what's a tip that you can give them? I think it comes back to um, planning, preparation, and execution, the planning and preparation. Put yourself in your best position possible to have the best exit you can to reflect the value you built up over years of your hard work. Planning and preparation. Top tips from someone who's been there. Thanks for your time today, Chris. Thank you.